And he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's for his glory and for our good. You may be seated. Before we look at God's word together, please pray with me now and ask for the teaching and the receiving of his holy word. Let's pray. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home, be with us today as we study your holy, infallible, and everlasting word. Calm our hearts and our minds, for we are distracted, burdensome creatures. And we ask and pray that we may be still now and know that you are God and that you are speaking to us. And that our hearts are ready to be pierced by your word. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds. That we may leave this place differently from when we arrived. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. Once again, my name is Seth Dews. I know my last name looks like does, but it's dues, like you pay your dues. I usually answer to either one. And I'm a pastor within the PCA and the newish chaplain at Randolph Air Force Base. My family and I moved here from Natchez, Mississippi this past March. I was a solo pastor there with my wife being the other staff member for six years. I've also been in the Air Force for six years now. And before coming on to active duty, I served in Bell Chase, Louisiana, right outside of New Orleans and the Louisiana Air Guard. 
And until this past March, I have been a Mississippi boy all my life. We, we do have paved roads there and electricity there, and we do have shoes there. Uh, the Lord called me to ministry uh, during college at Delta State University, the land of the fighting okra is our mascot. And I was the mascot for two years, so if you ever need an interesting story, I'd be happy to share one of those with you. But ministry runs in my family. My, my great-grandfather and my grandfather were both pastors. My father was an elder of the Presbyterian Church for a time. But I was a modern-day Jonah. I, I knew that the Lord wanted me to do ministry, but I ran from it, so much so that I was asked to leave by my nursing school instructors at Delta State. I was actually kicked out of the nursing school program because they said that they could tell that my heart was in ministry and my heart needed to be in nursing if I was going to be working with people's lives. And so I said, you know what, I think you're right. And so after college, I worked for a year before starting seminary. And along the way, I met my wife when we started dating. I gave her a chance to run. I sat her down and I told her about my ambitions to be a pastor and possible Air Force chaplain one day. And that if things worked out, that she needed to be okay with being a pastor's wife. Uh, she hasn't run away yet. She even followed me to Texas. And after eight and a half years later of marriage, we now have two little girls, almost two and four, and I can't imagine my life without them. And I guess our two cats that also followed us from Mississippi to Texas. But thank you for your hospitality this morning. Thank you, Derek, for the opportunity to, to preach and to share God's word together. This morning, if you still have your Bibles open, we, we come across an amazing history lesson and story in 2 Kings 5. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that most of you didn't read all of 1 Kings and 2 Kings 1 through 4, and, and neither did I. So before we get into 2 Kings chapter 5, there is some context that I would like for us to cover before we get into our passage this morning. So I want us to stretch our minds all the way back to Joshua and Judges. And there, Joshua, he is the new commander when the book of Joshua starts. Joshua was Moses' second in command. And Moses, that he gave him the ability to lead in Exodus through Deuteronomy. But before Moses dies, he, he passes the leadership torch to Joshua. And when we get to Joshua chapter 1, Joshua, he's a little overwhelmed. He's a little concerned because he's never led over 2 million people by himself. And what does God say to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 about this big responsibility? He says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For I, the Lord your God, am with you wherever you go. And so Joshua, he, he leads God's people extremely well with a few bumps in the road here and there. But when the book of Judges starts, Joshua has died at 110 years old. And so God's people, they're asking the question, well, who's going to lead us now? Who, who will be our leader? Who will be in charge? And God, he hears the people's cries, and he sends judges or temporary kings, 12 total, to deliver God's people from internal and external threats. But Judges doesn't end on a good note. The phrase in Judges that we sadly see more than any other phrase is God's people did what was right in their own eyes. God's people are still disobedient. 
And so they rebel and they pick their own king, known as Saul, although God had anointed David to be king in 1 Samuel. And Saul and David, they, they play this wonderful game of, of cat and mouse, and Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel. And once 2 Samuel starts, David, he has grown his family. He has 25 sons before his death in 1 Kings chapter 2. And near the end of his life, David is commissioned by God to start making blueprints for this new worship center, this new house of God, this new structure, the temple of the Lord. But his son, Solomon, would have the privilege to build it. Now, Solomon was a great man. We, we tend to kind of lift him on a pedestal for how wise he was and all the things that he did. He got his gift of wisdom from God in 1 Kings chapter 3. He becomes the wealthiest man that the world had ever seen, the wisest man until Christ. But even in all of his glory, after reigning for 29 years, the sin of polygamy and idolatry got in the way. And along with his son, Rehoboam, the united kingdom of Israel divides in 931 B.C. And so when we get to 2 Kings, we find that God's people are continuing to live in turmoil and division. It's approaching this time of their eventual deportation by Assyria and by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And so in chapter 5 this morning, we, we come to perhaps a not-so-familiar story. This is a story on the miraculous healing powers appointed by God through somewhat bizarre and unusual and fascinating circumstances. If we read through our passage, a song maybe comes to mind. It would be the catchy words of Alison Krauss, as I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way. And who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. However, our, our version of, of Allison's song, I think it should be changed to, as I went down to the river to wash, trying to get that leprosy off. It's not as catchy as, as Allison's song. This morning... If you're a good Presbyterian, we like to do things in threes, and I believe that there are three things for us to see in our passage this morning. Let's talk about the first, Naaman's egotistical heart. Naaman's egotistical heart in verses 1 through 7. So if you still have your Bibles open, I want you to go back to verse 1 with me. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him... The Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Did we notice all the great things that are listed about Naaman? He was a commander. It says he's a great man. He's in high favor, a mighty man of valor. And whoever wrote 2 Kings, he's, he's drawing us in with this classic storytelling because Naaman is taking center stage, but there's a problem. This is the only time that this particular Naaman is mentioned in the Old Testament. And he's in quite the dilemma, isn't he? Look at what it says about him. He has leprosy. This is a fatal skin disease that caused the recipient to be banished from society. In Leviticus 13, it says that the leprous person shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean, he shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. But notice how Naaman is only great because look at the end of verse 1. He's not great because of himself, but because of the Lord. The end of verse 1 says, Because by him 
the Lord had given victory to Syria. But when we get to verse 2, more of the story begins to unfold. Look at verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Now we don't know who this girl is. Did, did you notice that she's never named in our passage? The Syrians, the enemies of Israel, they take her, perhaps as leverage, bait to be a hostage in a situation unforeseen later down the road. We don't even know how old she is. But can you imagine what she has already been through? Can you imagine being taken from your family? Your family was most likely killed. And now you are working for the enemy. And not just the enemy, but the enemy's wife in their royal palace, in their house. And so look in verses 3 through 5. The girl, she tells Naaman's wife that she knows of a prophet who could heal Naaman. And the wife tells Naaman, Naaman tells the Syrian king, he's asking for permission to go and to seek this prophet out, who is Elisha, the successor to Elijah, who was taken up by a whirlwind in 2 Kings 2. And the king, he, he grants his request and says that he will send a letter to the Israelite king demanding that Naaman be cured. And so look at the last half of verse 5. It says, So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. This is, this is a lot of money. I'm not sure how much it would be in our terms today. I don't have the shekel to dollar currency counter and changer. The ten changes of clothing is like someone saying to a man, here are, here are ten brand new suits for you. But notice how Naaman, in all of his egotistical ways, he determines in his mind that if he brings all of these things, that that will fix the problem. This is a flamboyant and, and boastworthy prize that he is bringing before the prophet of God. And in Naaman's mind, he's thinking money and wealth can fix anything. How often do we think in our own lives today, tell me the price to fix all of my troubles. Tell me how much is this going to cost to make this problem go away? What do you need? Let me know the price. I would have loved to have seen this. If you look at verses 6 and 7, it says, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So two things that I want you to notice from verses 6 and 7, two things. The first is that we must stop acting like we're self-sufficient. We must stop acting like we're self-sufficient. You know, the Bible teaches that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. God has paid for us through the death and resurrection of his son, and we need him for our survival. And so how come, as Americans, we like to act like we're our own masters? We act like we don't need any advice. We don't need any counsel. 
We don't need any wisdom from others or from God. We've got it all figured out. It doesn't matter how hard we work, all the things that we do. If it's for our own glory and it's for our own ego, it will always fail us. We will always crash and burn. We're only who and what we are because of God's grace. But the second thing that I want you to notice from verses 6 and 7 is that we must realize that the world can't fix us. We must realize the world can't fix or help us. It's funny how the Syrian king thinks that the Israelite king suddenly has all of these healing powers to make leprosy go away. And that's why the Israelite king, King Joram, in verse 7, he gets so upset. What does he say? He says, I, I can't fix you. You're, you're in the wrong department. What, what are you doing here asking me this? You know, we often seek the wrong solutions from the wrong sources, don't we? When we know what to do, when we know that we need God's word more than anything, and yet we fail to take the time to learn it, so it can save us from our sufferings. And money doesn't fix everything. God cannot be bought. As Peter tells Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8, he says, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. But the second thing that I want us to see this morning is Naaman's angry heart. Naaman's angry heart in verses 8 through 13. So if you look in verse 8, we learn that Elisha has gotten word about Naaman's arrival. And so he tells the king to send Naaman to him. And so look in verse 9. It says, So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. I mean, wow, this is, a, this is quite the entrance. Anybody ever shown up to your house and, and horses and chariots and royal fanfare? Naaman, in his mind, is thinking, Surely I have arrived. While, while I was in... In seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, my, my wife and I, we were doing youth ministry at the time, and we got word that Kevin Costner, you know the actor Kevin Costner, Wyatt Earp, Field of Dreams, all the other movies Kevin Costner's in that I can't think of right now. So randomly, Kevin Costner, and this, this will give you something to do this afternoon if you need some, some homework, Kevin Costner has his own band, and it's called Kevin Costner and Modern Day West. And so Roberta and I got wind that Kevin Costner was coming to Jackson, and, and we were like, the, the actor? He, he has his own band? How, how is this reality? How, how is this possible? And so we got tickets, and we went to see Kevin Costner, and he had an opening band. And after the opening band, his band came onto the stage, and, and they kind of started doing this you know, slow kind of drum beat. It's kind of this tribal music going. Women are starting to pass out because they're so excited that Kevin Costner's here and that he's coming out. Roberta and I are looking at each other like, maybe this was a bad idea. I don't know if we should have done this. Are we supposed to be here? This is getting kind of strange. And the music's getting louder and louder and louder. And behind the stage, there's this curtain, kind of similar to one of these curtains behind me. And the music's building, the suspense, and everyone's just getting all amped up and fired up. And suddenly, Kevin Costner, he bursts through the curtain, and he comes out, and he's got his button-down shirt, and the button stops right here, and all of his manly chest hair is pluming out, right? And women are passing out and screaming. 
And Kevin Costner, he stands there and he goes like this and he says, I have arrived. I have arrived. And this lasted for about five minutes to the point where it was like, okay, Kevin Costner, we get it. You're here. Let's get on with the show. And this is exactly what Naaman is doing. Maybe minus the, the chest hair in the country band, right? Kevin Costner is just like Naaman, and Naaman is just like Kevin Costner. And he shows up thinking, I have arrived. And this is what I love about the story. Look at verse 10. Elisha doesn't even answer his own door. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Have a nice day. That's all I got to do. You see, Naaman, he's, he's expecting this grandiose welcoming party because he thinks in his mind that he's important and that money and his wealth can fix everything. And did you notice that Elisha doesn't even greet him? He sends an unnamed messenger to answer his door. It's very anticlimactic, isn't it? And Elisha, what is he doing through this act? He's treating Naaman as he's meant to be treated, a human who has leprosy, who's supposed to be banished from society, a leper that needs to be what? Healed. And the solution and the cure, look at what the cure is. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman, he, he, can't, he can't handle this. He can't handle how simple it is. He's already got this script written in his head for how he thinks it should go. And he doesn't want it to happen like this. And so he gets angry. Look at verses 11 and 12. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned away and went away in a rage. You know, this is a lot like us in our culture today, if you think about it. Naaman, he wanted the theatrics, didn't he? And Elisha was trying to show him, God doesn't need your theatrics. God needs our humility. And Naaman, he wanted Elisha to come out and, and do something great. Did you notice his words in verse 11 and 12? He said, I, I, I thought that Elisha would surely come out and, and kind of perform this sacred ritual over me. So I could do something great. So I could help in the process of being healed. You know, Naaman, he, he wanted Elisha to come out and say, look, go, go and bring me the head of Medusa. Go, go, go and defeat King Kong with your bare hands and then you can come back and then you can be saved. But Naaman doesn't want this as he thought. Naaman, he wanted something else that he could control. And Elisha is saying, I know you don't want this, but this is God's way. You know, often we, we might laugh at Naaman and his actions here, but 
we foolishly do the same thing. Often we, we pray to God, we ask for healing, we ask for redemption, and God gives us an answer, and we say, no, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I want to do it my way. And God says, no, this is the way. This is what you need to do. And we say, mm, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. Anyone, anyone could do what Elisha suggested for Naaman through all of this. And he's teaching Naaman in this moment that you are equal. You are not more important. You are not greater. You have not surely arrived like Kevin Costner. But here, look in verse 13, and we're thankful that Naaman brought some of his servants with him because in verse 13, you can imagine some of his servants, they're kind of, excuse me, uh, boss, look, I know know you're upset. I I know this isn't the way that you wanted it to go, but... But maybe, look in verse 13, maybe we should just do what he said. You know, we've, we've come all this way. Maybe we should just have you do seven cannonballs into the Jordan River. And, and let's just see if it worked. That way, if it doesn't work, we can say that we at least tried. And the third thing that we see this morning is Naaman's cured heart. Naaman's cured heart in verse 14. So we talked about Naaman's egotistical heart, his angry heart, and now his cured heart. If you look at verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Wow. Is that not a beautiful thing? You know, you can imagine sitting there on the riverbank with Naaman, and Naaman, he's, he's angry and he's frustrated, and this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe i got to jump into the Jordan River. This river, the, the water is nasty. It's not anything like those other rivers in Damascus. But I guess I'll do it. And so he's jumping in, and he, he, you can imagine him coming out. After the second, third time, nothing has changed. And then after that seventh time, he comes up, and imagine his reactions. When he looks at his hands, he looks at his feet and his face, he's touching his face, it's, it's gone. And it's the same way for us today, friends. We often, we don't want God's method or his way from Scripture, but God is saying, this is the way. We often convince ourselves that we don't need Christ. But I'm here to tell you this morning that we do. And he is the only way. He is the only way. And Naaman has encountered God. And he has a new grasp on truth and grace. So how, how does this story relate to us? Why, why care? Why, why does it matter from, from 2 Kings 5? Well, two, two things that I want us to, to take home with us today, two things. The first is, is come to Jesus, the one who completely restores us. Come to Jesus, the one who completely restores us. You know, because of Jesus and the justification that we have in him, our, our leprosy, our spiritual, our physical, our emotional, our mental leprosy is removed. And it's nothing that we did on our own merit. 
What does Psalm 51 say? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 51, verse 2. Jesus is the only one who can do this. And he has done it for us, friends. And his word is what we need to make that a reality. And through faith in him, we are saved. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We don't need all of these self-help and get-your-life-back-on-track books. We've got to stop neglecting the gold that has been given to us in God's word, that we're called to live by it and to enjoy it. The second thing to take home with us this morning is come to Jesus, the one who forgives. Come to Jesus, the one who forgives. I want you to go back to verses 2 and 3 again. Go back to verses 2 and 3. And there it says, The Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. You see, I, I believe this morning that the hero of this story is the little girl. The little girl who is unnamed. and We don't know anything about her. I love how in verses 1 and 2, they put Naaman, this great man, and the little girl side by side. And did you notice in verses 2 and 3 that this girl, she had a choice. She had been taken captive. She had been taken hostage, separated from her family. She knew that Naaman was in pain. She knew that her enemy was going to die from this. And how does she respond? She says, I know a man. I know a man who could help you. I know a man of God who could, who could cure you. You know, she could have easily said, I hope he dies. I hope the flesh rots off of his bones from leprosy because of what he did to me and my family. You know, sometimes... Instead of crying out for justice, we often relish in our enemy's sufferings, don't we? And she could have easily done this here. But you know what she did? She forgave. She forgave this man and all that he had done to her. Without her, Naaman would have never been healed. And you know, we often, we love holding grudges, don't we? We love holding back forgiveness in our sinful nature because we feel like, we convince ourselves that it makes us feel powerful. And there's no power in doing that at all, friends. There is no power in holding grudges. There is no power in not forgiving. She believed that the God of Israel, our God today, could completely restore and heal. And she points to someone greater. She points to someone greater than Naaman. She points to God. And forgiveness is costly at times, but we cannot let the bitterness take over our souls. You know, if you want to know what it's like, if you want to know what it's like to possess true power, to be one of the most powerful people on the planet, you do that by forgiving. Forgiving. If you've been holding a grudge for the last 15, 20 years, if you're waiting for someone to call you and to say they're sorry, that day might never come. And it's time that we let go. It's time that we stop holding those grudges. We forgive because we have been forgiven. 
We have been forgiven. By who? Jesus Christ. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive all sins. Mark 2, verse 10. We've got to stop acting like we're self-sufficient when in reality we're called to let us love and sing and wonder of his glorious love provided by Jesus, our Lamb. Jesus, cast a look on me. Give me sweet simplicity. Make me poor and keep me low, seeking only thee to know. All that feeds my busy pride, cast it evermore aside. Bid my will to thine submit, lay me humbly at thy feet. Make me like a little child, and of my strength and wisdom spoiled, seeing only in thy light, walking only in thy might. Friends, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let us pray together. Our dearest Yahweh and Master, what a wonderful story you have given us on removing our pride and arrogance. And help us as the new week finds us to forgive and to run to you, to run to your Son, the Good Shepherd, and the righteous branch for all things. For he has forgiven. He has forgiven us unlike anyone else could. And may we rejoice for this wonderful and gracious gift that we can confidently proclaim without any doubt that we can say, I'm forgiven. And hallelujah, what a Savior. We boldly proclaim in the name of Jesus. Amen.